Hello, this is Season 6, Episode 1. This season is supported by the generosity of Pfizer. Hello, this is Dr. Jason Lee. And in this season of my allergy podcast, we're going to stick to allergies again and go back to sort of the root of how this podcast started. And in this season, I have a host, a co-host, Brianne Hurdle, and she is a life coach in uh, Vancouver. And she is relatively a newbie to allergies, which is really kind of good because she can basically ask me the questions that you would want to ask if you were newly diagnosed or, you know, having a family member that's newly diagnosed with uh, allergies. So uh, welcome, Brian. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate uh, you inviting me on here. This is great. Great. Um, Yeah. So for, to kick us off, um, I think we're going to talk about uh, anaphylaxis. So this is one of the common things that I deal with in my practice every day. And, uh, you know, this can be quite a shock for patients to hear, you know, if they or their family members get diagnosed with anaphylaxis, because, you know, uh, the exposure is that, oh, my God, this can be, uh, you know, a life threatening problem, this can be a life changing problem as well, uh, in terms of lifestyle and label reading and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I thought this was a good starting point. What do you think, Brianne? Oh, this is great. No, I have a lot of questions. I'm um, a mom of three young girls. So between the ages of 10 and uh, eight and almost seven. And as we cannot pack peanuts in their lunch, the schools are very strict about nuts and going to school because of anaphylaxis in particular. So my question to start with, uh, Jason, would be uh, what would be the things to look for before it gets to a stage of um, restricted oxygen and breathing, like what are some of the first signs of somebody having an anaphylactic reaction? Yeah. So very good question, Brianne. Um, so anaphylaxis can occur, um, from foods and, you know, the top 20 food allergies cause the vast majority of reactions. And number one, as you pointed out is, uh, peanut allergies, uh, anaphylaxis can occur from other uh, causes as well. So some people are allergic to stinging insects that have venom, Uh, And we've got about five of them in Canada and other people can get reactions to medications, uh, you know, especially medications given in the hospital, but even simple over-the-counter medications like aspirin or Advil, uh, for example. So you asked the question, you know, what are the things to look out for? Well, most anaphylactic reactions, uh, which is basically a severe allergic reaction, occurs within the first half an hour of exposure. So it's pretty quick. So within five minutes to half an hour. Um, If it is a food, such as peanut we're dealing with, um, usually the patients may present with some itchiness in their mouth or throat, and they will break out into uh, skin rashes, which we call hives. They look like mosquito bites. And then, you know, within minutes, uh, this quickly can progress or concomitantly progress with breathing difficulty, throat constriction, um, you know, circulatory collapse, which causes people to lose consciousness or faint. And uh, in some cases, uh, GI symptoms as well, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, in women, um, you know, they can uniquely get mm-hmm. uterine contractions as part of allergic reactions, which a lot of people don't know about. So if you happen to be pregnant, they can actually cause it to lose a, Interesting. a pregnancy as well. Yeah, so um, these are, you know, some of the oh, common dear. symptoms and the progression is quite rapid. Now, uh, one common misconception people have, uh, I think, which is really important is, if you're reacting to a medication 
or if it's a really severe reaction, it can actually bypass the skin altogether. So you don't necessarily see the hives or, uh, or the skin rashes component. You can just drop your temperature. Uh, and you know this is one of the ways we can diagnose it. if you are exposed to something you know you're allergic to and you've got the circulatory collapse or breathing problem, um, then we can diagnose anaphylaxis as well. Wow, that's very interesting. I didn't realize the uterine contractions for pregnant women. That's crazy. Yeah, I've never that's not a common one people uh, know about. Um, no. yeah, it's, it's also the reason why, um, you know, if patients are getting allergy shots or allergy injections, we don't recommend it during pregnancy because should they uh, lose your baby? Of course, of course. And I, I was just curious to know in regards to anaphylaxis and, and just like what causes such a severe reaction versus just having a mild allergic yeah, reaction to something. It's very, a very good question. So, um, you know, the amount of allergen you're exposed to is, uh, is one factor. Um, but another huge factor, a lot of people don't realize is asthma. Asthma is single-handedly the biggest risk factor of whether or not you have a really bad outcome to an allergic reaction or not. So people with asthma, especially if the asthma is one untreated or really acting up or we call uncontrolled, uh, tend to have more of the respiratory involvement, uh, which is, you know, mm -hmm. the breathing difficulty and they're more easily triggered. So you know, one of the concepts that a lot of people don't know about is this uh, threshold effect of allergies. So, you know, it's not always that a tiny amount will cause or trigger a reaction, but once you hit this threshold and, and people with peanut allergies, for example, it's about roughly half a kernel for most people with peanut allergy. That's like the median uh, uh, amount that's required. Once you cross that threshold, you will have a reaction, but this threshold can change with uh, what we call cofactors of allergic reactions. So I mentioned asthma, it's the single biggest cofactor, but if you were also exercising, if you were under the weather or sick, if you had taken a drug like aspirin or Advil, uh, we'll call non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, if you had poor sleep the night before even, these, all of these things lower the threshold. So instead of half a kernel, maybe you would react at a quarter of a kernel, uh, for example. Um, so, you know, these things lower the threshold, but they also amplify the severity of reactions if they're on board. Mm, interesting. So it sounds like the immune system is really huge, like with allergies, like that's really what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, people... Um, underestimate factors like, um, you know, sleep hygiene and how well rested you are and stress, um, you know, and, and psychological stress alone um, can amplify reactions. But these are things, you know, as you know, uh, working as a life coach, they're very hard to quantitate, right? So, you know, we look at, um, you know, neuronal factors, uh, so, and there's many of them that can sort of prime the immune cells. So uh, the mast cells, which cause the majority of these symptoms, they release a lot of mediators, but they also feed back and are pl directly plugged into our, our brain and uh, stress center. So, um, you know, when we are under psychological stress, uh, these cells are more ready and, uh, uh, you know, uh, more likely to cause problems. And, uh, you know, this goes back mm -hmm. to evolution, like these cells evolved 500 million years ago or so. Uh, yes. Most complicated organisms have them. And when you think back mm -hmm. to millions and millions of years ago, what would stress animals and other life forms out? It'd be mm -hmm. like eating, getting eaten alive by, you know, parasites and bugs coming in. So, you know, that cause this is kind of like a, almost a vestigial remnant of that system is our, our brain can directly, you know, influence the functioning of our immune system. 
Right. Well, as I specialize in abnormal psychology, I totally understand. <laughs> That's our mammalian brain and our limbic brain working and keeping us in a sympathetic nervous state and not being in a parasympathetic, which causes massive stress in the body with cortisol and adrenaline and all those hormones and yeah, um, would drastically affect our immune system. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, and then, you know, when I was a trainee, um, just starting out learning about allergies and immunology, uh, even I was a bit skeptical, right? And then, and then the more you read about it, um, you know, we're kind of in the stone ages of learning this whole process out and how everything is interrelated. So, um, you know, even in the field of, you know, food allergies, for example, we know that uh, depression, anxiety are very common when we call comorbidities. But when you look at, yes. you know, um, more bigger claims databases with like, you know, for example, if you look at the entire US Medicare, Medicaid database, we notice other things that come up as well, like ASD, uh, ADHD. These are common comorbidities that are, you know, have a, 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 a sort of a psychological basis. And, uh, you know, at the basic science level, we're learning some ways that the dysregulation of the brain, the same cells also cause dysregulation in the immune system that predispose people to allergies. And, uh, you know, we used to of course. Like atopic disorders like eczema, asthma, uh, things like that. So um, it, it is very interesting how, you know, if you have a holistic view of how everything functions, everything is kind of inter interrelated to some degree. Oh, 100% it is. So I just said that, that this leads me to my next question. What about um, growing out of anaphylaxis or anaphylaxis, like and growing out of allergies? How does that happen? It's obviously the immune system. Yeah, so that's a really good question, and I wish I could uh, have the answer because um, I'd probably want to live up highs and be very famous. Um, but you know, it's some people do outgrow their allergies. So, for example, if you are allergic to peanuts and diagnosed as a child, um, you have about a ten to twenty percent chance of losing this allergy uh, as you grow up and uh, become an adult. Um, for other foods, it's actually much higher. So. Most children with uh, egg or milk allergy, for example, uh, will actually outgrow it. Uh, and, you know, from the time of diagnosis and around infancy or just after infancy, by the time they hit school age, they actually kind of naturally uh, outgrow it to a large degree. Um, sorry, my internet's a bit uh, unstable here. Oh, but, uh, um, yeah, so some people do outgrow okay. their allergies. And the reason why this occurs for some versus others is not fully well understood, but one of the things is the gut matures as well and your immune system matures. So if you look at things like egg or um, mm -hmm. dairy proteins, um, these are relatively simple linear peptides in comparison to something like uh, peanut allergen protein, which is a very complicated and heat resistant protein. So when the gut matures, it actually thickens and there's some immune training that occurs at the gut uh, interface with the outside world when you eat the food. So the body is in some ways able to um, you know, tolerate itself to things that may have been allergic to or misclassified in the past. And the other thing that occurs is um, the amount of stomach acid production we have and the digestive enzymes actually uh, ramps up as you get older. So when these um, things are, uh, when these processes are breaking down the proteins that you eat, um, the ones, the proteins that are more simple, like the egg or milk allergen, they tend to break down easily uh -huh. with the digestive enzymes. Whereas for peanut, it tends to be more resistant to this degradation and, and therefore the effects are, are, are more 
So these are some of the theories, and, 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 and some of them are not theories because they've been proven. Um, but um, yeah, it's very complicated and why some people develop a phenomenon called energy, uh, energy spelt with an A, which means basically self-tolerance, uh, whereas right. others do not. Wow, that's so fascinating. Because what about microbiome in the gut? Like we're all learning about the brain-gut connection and how huge this is for our immune system. Yeah, um, so do you think that with treating microbiome and, and getting rid of toxicity in the gut will improve um, people, like their ability to be more resistant to allergies or the severity of an allergy? Yeah, great question. So we know that uh, infants who've had antibiotic exposure in their first year of life are much more likely to develop food allergies. And this does speak to getting rid of some of the natural sort of stimulation that the uh, gut immune system sees. And if it's not there, um, you know, maybe there's a more of a chance for dysregulation. So we know, for example, eczema, which is also, um, you know, created or caused and the genitor of this is um, the same part of the immune system that makes the mistake to develop food allergies. Eczema is much more likely as well in children who've been exposed to antibiotics. Um, so the other, you know, sort of corollary to this is uh, kids who grew up in farms or in environments where they're more exposed to, you know, uh, a universe of different uh, biomes and uh, microbiology uh, are less likely to get uh, food allergies and less likely to get anaphylaxis. Um, yeah, the other interesting thing is, um, you know, it goes, speaks to something called the hygiene hypothesis again. But mm -hmm. you see, um, you know, children who grew up in homes with uh, a dog or a lot of older siblings are also less likely to get it as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting how, um, what, you know, kids are naturally prone to putting stuff in their mouth and how this may affect the microbiome or may even uh, skew the immune system to be uh, less hypervigilant or less likely to make mistakes. Interesting. Um, I just want to just reference my, my second daughter who was diagnosed with autism just before she turned two. And she was born... Uh, with thrush and had terrible microbiome. I had a rough delivery and I was on antibiotics myself two weeks before her birth. And my doctor had said something along the lines of, well, your gut flora, vaginal flora was completely wiped out. And so therefore it passed along to the baby. She's got bad gut flora. And then, you know, we ran into this neurological diagnosis a few years later, wow. but she's got the worst skin. She's got eczema. And it is terrible. She actually ran into poison ivy uh, last week and broke out with the worst rash, with the worst blisters. I looked like she had a chemical burn. I've never yeah. seen anything like it. It yeah. literally is like a chemical burn, uh, the pathophysiology. Um, you know, a lot of it is chemical irritation. And in your daughter's case with the poison ivy, it's something called urochial, yeah. the chemical. And, yes. uh, you know, the vaginal flora, you bring up an, a, a very um, interesting point as well. Yeah. So, Children who are born by C-section who are not exposed to the, um, you know, vaginal flora and fauna are yeah. kind of more or are more, not kind of, uh, are more prone to developing eczema, food allergies and whatnot. Again, speaking to the exposure to the microbiome. So, you know, things have changed a little bit. I know, um, you know, my oldest daughter was also born by C-section and, you know, they made sure to actually, they actually put vaginal, like, you know, my wife's vaginal. Yeah. They washed the neurotransmitters. Yeah. Yes, of That's course. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now we also know that the skin to skin contact is very important. So when we look at, you know, the nineties and earlier when food allergies and all of this stuff was rising really quickly, we did like everything, 
pretty much in a too hygienic environment where kids were not exposed or even removed from their mothers. The skin to skin contact was not uh, even encouraged. Uh, So a lot of these epidemiologic, uh, you know, things that we've done in the, you know, in, in, in seeking sterility, um, you know, have made things worse. And even like, you know, as I said here now and where you are, we live in glass towers, essentially. There is no exposure to dirt or anything uh, in the environment, really. So nope. our immune systems are just kind of bored with uh, what to do. Yes, and it's not good. We need to have <laughs> the exposure to this stuff. Yeah, actually, Avalyn was born naturally, but, but she, I, I had no flora. Unfortunately, it was all wiped out from the antibiotics I was on because I'd had a sinus infection. And they'd put me on um, amoxicillin for a week and a half or so. And it's always like a hard balancing game for physicians now, now that we know this, because everything is kind of like uh, predicated on risk, benefit and alternatives. And uh, sometimes, you know, the mother just needs to be treated uh, for her infection. And, uh, you know, you you don't don't have a great choice uh, uh, always, but uh, yeah, you know, judicious use of antibiotics and any therapeutics is uh, definitely something. Yeah. But it's so interesting with the allergy and her being more prone to, I mean, she's got the worst skin. She's got like, she's got brutal eczema and her fingers peel and she is on the spectrum. So if I change her diet and improve her, her gut flora, which she seems to have a problem with naturally, she just has very bad gut flora. Mm -hmm. It it is. uh, Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, And uh, you know, it's um, you hear this a lot. So these are certainly risk factors for people to develop an allergy and, and, you know, parents always ask me, um, what can I do so that my next child or whoever doesn't get an allergy? And uh, so, you know, what I usually mm-hmm. advise is try to, you know, not be too clean. And uh, if you're pregnant, just eat uh, whatever, uh, you know, that you can uh, to expose, uh, you know, in utero as well. So a lot of people were actually given the wrong advice mm-hmm. of avoiding things like peanut during pregnancy and avoiding certain foods. But, you know, again, that was not really based on solid science. And it was from this whole, you know, drive to sterility again and drive to avoidance. But it, it yeah. turns out those things actually make everything worse. And, you know, even when I was growing up and later on when I was going through med school, the advice was again wrong to avoid exposure to foods for children until they're like two years old or, or some other arbitrary number that, you know, yes. some, some old doctor made up. And, uh, you know, again, yeah. now that we've have better randomized evidence, we know that all of those things made things worse. Um, so, yes. you, you know, uh, free, even when I was a trainee, I would go to conferences and there'd be these pro con debates by different experts, different allergists in the world. And they were discussing, you know, when to introduce foods based on recommendations versus just uh, letting the kid eat whatever. And, you know, one thing really stuck in my mind, when an infant starts developing teeth, that is nature telling you that they're ready for some solid food. And that is nature to introduce food. And that kind of stuck with me. And, you know, fast forward um, six years after I was done training, um, a big study, called LEAP came out, which was a randomized way of looking at peanut allergy specifically. And this put to bed the whole debate. Earlier you expose peanuts, the less likely the kid has of developing peanut allergy. And these were- Of course. you know, children who had eczema and, uh, you know, those are considered higher risk of developing a food allergy. And in fact, when you had 
the other half of the kids avoid peanut, it actually made the problem worse. So they're much more likely to develop other food allergies as well. So again, this advice, I don't know where it came from, but uh, we have this kind of dogmatic approach in medicine where it's hard to challenge old ideas uh, until you've had have like the solid randomized trial. So and yeah, I'm right. glad things are getting better. Yeah, absolutely. Like it feels like we're going backwards a little bit rather than making it worse. And when you talk about epigenetics and how we evolve as humans and you don't want something permanent <laughs> as we evolve to, especially when it comes to allergies, if we can go backwards a little bit and be exposed to more bacteria and, and microorganisms that are actually improving our immune systems. So yeah, that's for, fantastic for sure. information. Brie, you asked me about, um, or you talked about epigenetic factors. So epigenetics is a very interesting field in uh, allergy and immunology. So uh, we know some epigenetic factors do predispose people to developing not only food allergies, but asthma, for example. Well, if you have a child and you know that child's maternal grandmother um, happened to be a smoker or worked in a uh, smoky factory around the time of industrial revolution or whatnot, uh, that child is much more likely to develop uh, these kind of conditions like food allergies and asthma. And it's almost like the generation skips, but the epigenetic changes that occur are trying to prepare future generations to live in a much kind of dirtier or sooty environment. Uh, so these kind of factors, and we're just starting to figure them out. Like, you know, I mentioned we're kind of in the stone ages. Uh, it's so complicated, but yeah, these factors are kind of interesting in that they help explain why the prevalence, the number of people that have food allergies and other conditions uh, that are called atopic are increasing. Interesting. Of course, that would make sense. Introducing toxicity as we've moved along through the years. And our sociological environment circumstances, smoking once upon a time was thought to be healthy for you, right? And then the aftermath, skipping generations and causing more issues. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's funny how, uh, you know, society and societal cultural influences can affect all of this. And, you know, what we once thought as advancement uh, actually, uh, you know, brings us back a couple of steps too. It does, doesn't it? Absolutely. What are some other factors, um, um, Jason, that uh, that would uh, be linked to allergies? Like, what are some other? So a lot of it is genetics, and we know a lot of it is epigenetics. So in terms of genetic factors, you know, having one parent with an allergy uh, makes it likely that the child will have a 40% chance of having some type mm -hmm. of atopic condition. Um, having two parents makes that uh, increase to about 60%. Um, but in terms of specific food allergies, and uh, again, this is a common misconception, specific foods are not uh, heritable. So for example, if you are allergic to peanut, it doesn't mean that your children are gonna automatically have a peanut allergy, but the propensity to develop allergies increases. So it doesn't have to be one-to-one. And if it is one-to-one, -one, then you know it's kind of a, um, you know, kind of like fluky or by chance. But, you know, having said this, it's a little bit more complicated if you want the nuanced answer. Some proteins, okay. are, yeah, some proteins uh, in nature are more likely to fit the immune receptors that recognize them. So, you know, a um, common example of this, um, you know, if we 
looking food is the peanut allergens. There's many of them, uh, but some of them are like the perfect size and shape to fit something called the HLA gene, which is uh, known as in mice, major histocompatibility complex. These are the receptors that you know, take in protein from the outside and present it to the inside of the cellular machinery. And if you have proteins that are like mm -hmm. a perfect fit and shape and charge, they're more likely to be presented to the immune system. And if you're processing more of these, the propensity to make that mistake increases. You know, outside of allergies, you mentioned the uh, poison ivy as well. Uh, but a similar yeah. thing can occur to people who are allergic to nickel, uh, which is in, you know, a lot of jewelry, costume jewelry. Um, and nickel ions are almost like the exact perfect fit for the HLA receptor. So that's why so many people have uh, nickel allergies, for example. And, and, you know, these kind of phenomena occur in nature, just our bodies immune cells are more likely to recognize some things or more likely to take them up just by nature of, of the shape of uh, and charge of the particles that it sees. Oh, okay. Interesting. Now, do you, is there such a thing as an allergy versus a sensitivity to uh, a yeah. food or something? Absolutely. And that's a very common question that uh, patients ask me. So an allergy is by definition, something called a hypersensitivity reaction. So it's, it's sort of an, an abnormal immune response to whatever mm -hmm. you're being exposed to. Um, mm -hmm. So in the case of food allergies, most of them involve an allergy antibody that your body has decided to create. Uh, it's called the right. IgE. And IgE fits that particular food's protein. Um, now, in other cases, you can actually directly trigger those mast cells by something that doesn't involve IgE at all. So these cells, again, they're designed as homeland security or border patrol for your body. So they're designed to detect things mm -hmm. like temperature, uh, osmolality gradients, and uh, you know pressure even. So these cells can be triggered by different uh, stimuli, including other infections. So you know, so a bit of a roundabout answer uh, because it's it's a, honestly a complicated one. But sensitivity, uh, on the other hand, by definition, is roughly when you're have a response to that particular food's innate intrinsic properties, and you are by definition on the bottom two standard deviations. So uh, I'll give you an example that most people understand. So coffee and alcohol, people understand. Coffee has intrinsic mm -hmm. properties, okay? So the caffeine, for example. And some people mm -hmm. by definition are very sensitive to the effects of caffeine. So if they're, mm -hmm. if they're on the bottom two standard deviation on the bell curve or something like that when you plot it out you're more likely to experience the effects like jitteriness heart palpitations uh, affecting your mood um, other people with alcohol for example again if you are on the bottom two standard deviation mm -hmm. you never drink um, and you have your first sip of wine or chardonnay or what have you you're more likely mm -hmm. to get the effects of the alcohol and the intrinsic uh, effects of the alcohol. So, so that's the definition of sensitivity. And for each food, it's different. You know, I'll mm -hmm. share an interesting factoid that a lot of people don't know. Um, okay. Some foods actually have narcotic properties. Um, so, you know, narcotics are, uh, everyone knows, opium and heroin. Um, of you know, course. Opium is a naturally occurring, uh, you know, narcotic. It affects mm -hmm. what's called uh, myopioid receptors. And 
other foods actually have mu opioid, uh, we call agonistic activity, meaning that they can stimulate these cells. So right. for example, a lot of the wheat proteins uh, can act as weak narcotics. Um, you know, egg proteins, some of them uh, can act as weak uh, narcotic properties. And uh, dairy protein, some of them can act as weak narcotic properties. So narcotics in general, you know, they kind of are there and exist in nature sometimes to make you feel satiated and full and happy. So that's why you eat like a pizza, you feel happy and mm -hmm. full. Uh, but they also slow down digestion. So, you know, uh, anyone who's used a, a narcotic for post-op or any medical thing knows that you, you, you get, you know, quite severely constipated and you feel bloated. Oh, yeah. And, um, and this is why it slows down the gut transit time and the gut digestion. So some of these foods, you can imagine their value in nature. You eat food, you kind of want the digestion to slow down. You want to feel full, but slowing down mm -hmm. the digestion lets you absorb more of the other foods that you have taken in because it gives that transit time increased time. So, of course. so a lot of people think that these effects, um, you know, they, they are sensitive. And if you're in the bottom two standard deviation of these foods, you will notice these effects. So some people will say, oh, I feel really tired. You know, some people refer to it as a food coma after eating foods uh, of this thing. Yes. And uh, or they feel bloated and full. Uh, so yeah, again, those would be a, a sensitivity. Everyone notices it to a certain extent, but it, it affects more some people than others. Interesting. That's really interesting. I work on a sort of more of a holistic. So I was a holistic health coach for a long time and I use um, plant medicine <laughs> and to a lot of GPs, they don't necessarily um, uh, understand a lot of it, but it it's the protein has been removed during distillation. So when people often have come to me and been like, Oh, I'm allergic to melaleuca or tea tree. I'm like, well, you can have a skin sensitivity to it because it'll bind to the proteins in your skin, but the actual histamine and protein is not part of the oil. Yeah, that's longer. a very interesting uh, uh, comment you made too. And, you know, when I do allergy skin testing, uh, it's kind of a similar process. So they autoclave the uh, proteins. So the uh, extracts that I used, uh, you know, for skin testing, for example, to foods, uh, behave like a cooked version of these foods as opposed to the fresh version. Wow. So that's a, that's a little nuance that a lot of, uh, you know, doctors don't know, even within the specialty of allergy, is that the extracts are not always the same as actually using the real food to test, for example. So if you, you know, a perfect example of this is celery. Celery happens to be a fairly common uh, food allergy. And if you mm -hmm. don't use the actual real celery, um, and you rely on a commercially available extract that's been autoclave for sterility, you may actually miss mm -hmm. the diagnosis uh, in, in cases like this. Because it's been altered. Yeah. So that yes. makes a lot of sense for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, wow. There's so much to know about allergies and the yeah, immune system. Sense. Yeah. So that's this season, um, yeah, we're going to talk about it all, Brianne. And, uh, you know, we have, we've got a whole season planned for talking about everything about allergies and anaphylaxis and food. And, you know, I did want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Pfizer who are supporting this and uh, sponsoring this whole season. And uh, yeah, having us put out this information out there. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. This has been absolutely fascinating and um, keep sharing all of your knowledge. We all need to know. Thank you. I look forward to the next episode. Absolutely. Me too.